everyone! Welcome back to episode 14 of Reading with Grace. Today we'll be picking up from chapter 11, but first a recap of chapters 6 through 10. Aaron was kicked out of Wanted University. No one quite knows by whom, but he is now living on the streets of Quill. Alex wrote a list of reasons why he shouldn't become the next Mage of Archmage to present to Mr. Today. Revenge is the only thing keeping Aaron alive at the moment. Sam Heed may be developing a crush on Megan that Lonnie noticed first. Alex is now meeting regularly with Mr. Today, although he's not sure why since he doesn't want the job. Alex presented his list of reasons why not to be mage to Mr. Today, who looked over it but then told Alex all the things he admired about him. He went on to say he thinks Alex should reconsider, and we left off last episode with Mr. Today about to tell Alex the story of Simber, because before there was Artemay, there was Simber. Enjoy the episode! Eleven, In the Beginning The old mage still sitting on the corner of his desk had a familiar faraway look in his eyes he thought about the beginning of Artemay. I knew magic growing up, a few of us did, but we were largely an underground society on Warbler Island. Justine and I both could do it, I was better than she. Alex sat up. Wait, Warbler Island? Mr. Today nodded but didn't explain, choosing rather to continue with the story. Once she and I moved here and we established Quill, the wall began to go up, which took years. Also during those early years, all the people were made to forget their past and their magical abilities, and Justine initiated the purge. You already know that eventually I became disillusioned with our motives and moved from Quill to this part of the island, and I lived in the little gray shack you saw when you first entered the gate. Alex nodded. And you said something about Simber? Ah, yes. One day I was down on the beach, feeling quite utterly alone in the world. I'd suppress my artistic tendencies, accepting Justine's belief that creativity was a sign of weakness. But that day we'd had a rare bit of rain, and the entire stretch of sand was damp. I began to sculpt an animal once I'd seen the book as a child. A cheetah. It was the most stunning creature I'd ever seen, and I still remember that picture as if it were here in front of me. I worked to recreate it all day, getting the curve of its back and roll of its shoulders, the strength and proportion of its hind legs just right, its face, its eyes, intelligent, powerful, fierce, but caring eyes. And then, on a whim, becoming uniquely inspired, I added wings. Perhaps I was feeling a bit caged in myself. He chuckled softly, lost in the memory for a moment. When I knew that I had perfected each part of the creature, I preserved that part with magic, making its surface almost completely indestructible, he said, smiling proudly. And then, when I was quite finished, I brought it to life. Wow, Alex whispered. Simber is made entirely out of sand? Indeed. Thus, Simber lacks the spots that a cheetah normally has. Alex looked puzzled. How did you bring him to life? I've never seen anyone do that before. Mr. Today smiled as if he had a secret. He whispered. That's because I've never taught it to anyone before. Alex leaned forward, his eyes wide, his heart pounding in anticipation. Will you teach it to me? He asked. The creator of all magical life in Artemay leaned forward as well. He pressed a finger to his lips for a long moment in consideration, his eyes flickering once to the wall and then back to Alex and remaining there, holding the breathless boy's gaze until the weight of the question nearly toppled them both. Finally, Mr. Today whispered the answer. No. Twelve. The slightest clue. Alex's face fell. He looked away. Oh, he felt heat rising to his cheeks. Mr. Today's eyes were filled with pity. I'm sorry, he said, and it came from somewhere deep, somewhere very sincere. As much as I want to, my dear boy, I can't do it. It's okay. Alex wished he could disappear into the chair cushion. Why did he even ask? Why would he think Mr. Today would teach him when he wouldn't teach anyone else? 
It felt almost as bad as when Miss Octavia told him he couldn't advance to magical warrior training last year. He raised his eyes to the old mage. It's because I said I didn't want to be the next leader of Artime, isn't it? Truthfully, yes, Mr. Today said, sitting back in his chair once again. I made a promise to myself long ago that there would be certain spells, certain properties of our particular kind of magic, that I would not teach to anyone but my successor. I fear these abilities could get into the hands of the people who are incapable of using common sense, and who don't understand the value of that power. Mr. Today eased off the desk. So as much as I trust you, I must save this particular secret for the right person. However, he said with a small smile, I did give you the slightest clue. You did? What was it? But Mr. Today only smiled and changed the subject. So now you know the story of Simber, who remains one of my most incredible magical creations, and my dearest friend. His memory is impeccable, and everything he has experienced is captured in his inner senses. It didn't take him long at all to learn everything he knows. Such an amazing beast. He can see and hear better than any human or animal. He is capable of emotion, as you've witnessed more than once, and he is loyal to the end. He gave a wiry smile and added, You may have noticed that Simber cannot perform magic, though many of my other creatures can. I didn't think of it at the time, he being my first, and now it's too late, but he hardly has the need for it. The only other thing I didn't anticipate was that he would grow. I created him life-size, but he grew as if he were a newborn on that first day. I'm grateful for it now, but there was a time when I wondered if he'd ever stop. Wow, Alex said. And he did stop, I mean, or is he still growing? He couldn't imagine Simber getting any bigger. Oh, he stopped, Mr. Today said, laughing, thankfully. And you created Miss Octavia, too? Is she also made out of sand? Oh, Octavia, such a delightful creature. Mr. Today said, his hands clasped together. No, she's not made of sand. She was a different sort of sculpture experiment. Simbers of the earth, Octavia's of the water, clay, seaweed, lily pads, shells, that sort of thing. So her parts aren't, aren't real? Like not from a real octopus or alligator? Good heavens, no. I'd never behead a living creature to create something magical. How heartless. Mr. Today clutched his robe dramatically. No, she is purely fabricated, but I'm worried that you can't tell. I can't. Honest. She's amazing. Don't tell her I told you, but her eyeglasses are purely for show. She's quite vain about them, he chuckled. Alex grinned, and then he grew thoughtful. Why can't Miss Octavia or Simber or Florence be the next leader of Artime? Alex asked. Mr. Today was taken aback, as if the answer was obvious. Why, because, my dear boy, they were created by me. They exist only at my command. Alex furrowed his brow. So how do they die? Or don't they? Aha! Another excellent question, Mr. Today said, smiling. Alex waited, and when Mr. Today didn't speak, he said, Aw, another secret? Alex grinned in spite of his disappointment. He was glad Mr. Today wasn't mad at him for turning down the job. But now he wondered who Mr. Today would choose instead. Who would get to know the answers to these secrets? And he had to admit, the thought of one of his peers getting this information, getting to spend so much time learning from this most amazing person who created all of these incredible things, and who was getting ready to hand over the key to this world... Well, that brought the slightest twinge of jealousy to Alex's heart. Like maybe he was missing out on the greatest opportunity of his life. Thirteen. Thinking like a necessary. When Aaron left the ancient sector full of newfound bitterness, his mind swimming with ideas, he realized what his biggest, dumbest mistake he'd made so far. Now he walked with purpose, straight for the favored farm. How could he have forgotten his own creation? It must have been the disconnection between creating the idea of the farm and actually doing the physical work of growing and harvesting. 
Wanted were the thinkers, the creators, not the mindless pluckers and deliverers. If Aaron was going to be forced to walk for days with no one bringing him food or drink, he'd have to start thinking differently. He'd have to start thinking like necessary. He shuddered at the thought. But at least he would eat. It took him quite some time to get there, and he had forgotten about the wooden fence around the crops. But then he saw a soldier standing by the gate that led into the farm. Aaron mustered up as much authority as he could. The high priest told me to pick my own corn if I wanted corn, Aaron said, repeating the complaint he'd heard days ago on the street outside the university. So I'm here to pick my own food. The quilletary soldier eyed Aaron suspiciously for a moment. Then he stepped aside. Limit is four items, total, not each. All right, Aaron stepped into the garden, and the smell of fresh fruits and vegetables was the most amazing thing he'd smelled in months. It nearly covered up the rotten stench from alongside the road. He inhaled, and then trying not to seem too desperate, he quickly scanned the rows of the farm, digging through his memory for the layout he designed, wondering where the coconut trees and watermelon plants ended up. Finally, he found them on the opposite ends of the farm. He gathered up one of each and sat down under the coconut tree, a rare shady spot in Quill, but he couldn't get the coconut to crack open, so he pounded his fist into the watermelon, finally breaking it, feeling like he also broke his hand in the process. But it didn't matter. He dug into the pink flesh and slurped it, seeds and all. It wasn't as refreshing as water, but it would have to do. When finished, he wiped his sticky hands in the grass and his chin on the shirt and tossed the watermelon rinds into the giant raspberry bush. Then he took two more watermelons and two ears of corn, leaving the useless coconut behind. He made sure he had no signs of watermelon juice on his shirt, and then he headed out past the guard, obediently showing the food. The soldier patted down Aaron's book bag and let him pass without a word. When Aaron got to the street, he breathed a sigh of relief, and he wandered past the quilletary housing sector, his arms aching from the weight of the watermelons. He stopped to rest and gaze at the governor's homes. There were six best houses in Quill, not counting the high priest's palace. Aaron burned with anger when he thought about how his hopes to live in one of those these days had been so violently dashed. He wondered if Governor Strang might be persuaded to let on Aaron's side. Strang had liked Aaron before everything fell apart, but Aaron hadn't seen him in a while. Perhaps he was home today, but then Aaron looked at himself, dirty, smelling, wandering aimlessly. He was sure the governors all knew about him getting kicked out of the university. They were probably behind it, along with Haluki. Aaron turned his gaze to Haluki's house as a drop of sweat made a shiny line from his temple to his jaw. Two buckets of water sat on the step by the door, having been delivered recently, no doubt, tempting him. He swallowed reflexively, but the sticky sweetness of the watermelon had left his mouth drier than before. It was not worth trying to steal from a governor, much less the high priest, no matter how crazy with thirst he was. He'd be put in jail for years for that. Aaron narrowed his eyes, hating everything about the house and its occupants. And then his eyes widened, and his hatred for the house trickled away. Wait a second, he said softly. If Miss Haluki and the two children are in Artime, and the high priest Haluki's in the palace, who is living in the Haluki's house? Great land of Quill, Aaron whispered. That's it! Fourteen. Home sweet home. It was agony for Aaron waiting in the dark, but he knew that the only way to the property sneak into the Haluki home. It wasn't about to blow it now. When all was quiet in the neighborhood and all was clear, he went to the rear door to try a little trick he'd learned from the quilletary soldiers back when they liked him. The quill doors tended to be a bit loose in their jabs during the driest months, and nearly every home had some sort of rod or termite infestation, so things were not as secure as they seemed. Aaron lifted up the door handle, moving the whole door an inch or so, and then wrenched it to the side. He heard the rusted bottom hinge break free from the soft wood and clatter to the floor inside the house. One more wrench for the top hinge and the door opened. Aaron grabbed his watermelons and went inside, setting them on the table. Then he maneuvered the door closed again and leaned against it, breathing hard. 
He had never been so lightheaded in all of his life. He went to the front door, unlocked and opened it, and peered outside to make sure no one was about. When he was certain he wasn't being watched, he brought the precious water inside. In the kitchen, he took a cup and with a shaky hand, dipped it in it and drank heartily. He dipped the cup in a second time, knowing he should try to preserve the water, but not caring at this particular moment. Two large buckets of water, all to himself for an entire week. It was the best possible reward for all punishment he'd taken recently. When he had cleaned himself up, he made his way to the bedroom and collapsed on the mattress, not unlike the kind he'd had at university, and fell asleep. In the morning, when the sunlight streamed in through the dusty windows, and the heat of the day was not yet upon the land of Quill, Aaron rose. He took stock of the Haluki's provisions, which were shockingly plentiful. They had an entire shelf of cooking and baking materials, a shelf containing large sacks of rice, beans, and peanuts, and a shelf of dried herbs and oils. Aaron stared at the abundance. Growing up in a necessary house and then going straight to university, where his meals were served in cafeteria, he had none of these extras just lying around. Aaron glanced over his shoulder, even though he knew no one was in the house. It was more out of habit, or perhaps because he knew he was doing something terribly against the law. Just being here made them worthy of life in jail, or worse. But he also felt strangely confident about not getting caught. It was clear from looking around that the Halukis had closed up the house as if leaving permanently, which rarely happened in the past before Artime, except when the last of the family had been sent to the ancient sector. And even then, there was another family eagerly waiting to move in. But now with people vacating daily and moving to Artime, and with all the added confusion and quill these days, Aaron felt that if he were careful to come and go through the back door and limit his outdoor movement after dark, then he could get away with living here for quite some time. He took a handful of peanuts and ate them as he surveyed his new living quarters. The kitchen and gathering space was twice as large as the entire home Aaron's parents lived in. There was a table for four study chairs, a sofa and two lounge chairs in the gathering area of soft cushions. Who needs so many chairs? He wondered as he tested them out. A family of four needs four chairs at most. Aaron furrowed his brow at the waist. He wondered about all the homes that stood empty now in necessary quadrants. All those extra furniture items just sitting there, he mused. Beds, chairs, non-perishables, cooking equipment, waste-bearing shovels. Aaron moved through the house, noticing all the unnecessary things that the Halukis had. And he burned with anger once more. Hi, Priest Haluki, Aaron said matter-of-factly. One day you will beg me for your life. He moved down the short hallway, and I will not give it back to you. He paused a little surprised by the cold words that had just come out of his mouth. But he cleared his head and continued on, entering a closed room that contained a desk and a large double-door closet. Aaron peered at the desk, noting a few books and papers. He stepped behind it to the closet and put his hands on the doorknobs. When he pulled them open wide, he could only stare at the contents, completely baffled. His forehead wrinkled as he puzzled over the giant glass cylinder before him. He reached out tentatively to touch its surface, murmuring, What in the name of Quill is this? Fifteen. A Skirmish Coming toward the gate, everyone on Artemis still called at the gate, out of habit even though the gate was no longer there, were two hulking, serious types from Quill. Fresh out of the university, RJ guessed Atina, one of her companion Gerinos, as the young men approached. Not wearing quilletary garb, no book bags, a bit tired around the eyes, but pale, Tina murmured. Definitely indoor workers, not old enough to have children in here, though. She and RJ stood, snorting a few times for effect. The two stepped closer uneasily. We're here to see our brothers, one said. What are your names? Tina asked politely enough. Dreg Crandall, said the taller one. Crawlage Prize, said the other, whose hair curled around his ears and dripped with sweat. And you're here to see? RJ was skeptical. Crandall and Prize, 
They had the same last names as two of the governors. As far as she knew, the Hulukis were the only governor's families here, but RJ certainly didn't know everyone in Artemay. Our brothers, Crandall said again, impatiently this time. He scratched a small scab on his neck. RJ and Tina stood aside. Do you know where to find them? We'll find them, Price said. He and Crandall passed through the opening and strode quickly to the footpath, looking a bit startled by the bright colors as they gave left and right of the people milling about, munching on breakfast pastries, and strolling across the grass. Keep an eye on them, RJ said to the other two Gerinos, whose names are Opal and Penelope. Be ready to call for help if necessary. Moments later, angry shouts rang out from near the lawn from the mansion. Crandall and Price had approached a group of necessaries and were attempting to yank two of them away. Come on, Price said, trying to get the necessary to be quiet. Your little vacation is over. You are required in quadrant one. No, stop! Help me! The necessary shouted, catching the attention of two teachers. Mr. Appleblossom and Miss Claire Morning, who were enjoying a rather spirited discussion of musicals versus plays nearby. Mr. Appleblossom bounded over, and Miss Morning kept up easily with her long strides. What's going on? Miss Morning asked, her normally kind voice quite curt this morning. The necessary tried to yank his arm away. They're trying to force us back to work in Quill, he said, breathless. They have duties, said Crandall, who glared at the other two teachers, who looked fairly harmless to him. He took a better grip of the arm he was holding and turned toward the gate. Come on, he growled. Mr. Applebossom spoke up. Your pompousness, his attitude is bore. Now kindly take yourselves right out the door. Pry stared at the theater instructor. What? he asked, for Mr. Applebossom's manner of speaking and rhyme took some getting used to. Out and out, away, away, away. Do not return again another day. Mr. Applebossom gestured impatiently toward the gate and even stopped his foot. Crandall, face turning red, let go of the necessary and turned toward Mr. Applebossom. He hovered over the little instructor, his hands balling into fists. Mr. Applebossom's eyes narrowed. A small smile played on Miss Morning's lips as she watched. Crandall glanced at Prize, and they both looked at Mr. Applebossom. Just as Crandall pulled his arm back for a swing, he jumped back in surprise. Ouch! he cried, spinning around. Ow! He looked this way and that, his eyes wild, his hands swatting at his body. Soon Crawlidge, Prize, was hopping and exclaiming in pain as well. Miss Morning's smile turned to a look of surprise, for she had not released a spell, and neither had Mr. Appleblossom as far as she could tell. As the two wanteds gave up and ran for the gate, Miss Morning spied the instigators, Cole Wicket and Megan Ranger, who had been meeting on the lawn a short distance away and now came running toward them. Are you all right? Megan asked. Mr. Appleblossom watched the two governor's sons until they were out of sight in Quill. He lifted his hand to his forehead and patted away any sweat that might have formed, though everyone suspected it was more of an act than a necessary gesture. I'm well, he said, finally turning to the students. The ruffians have fled to Quill, he turned to the necessaries. Now you two friends are quite shaken, perhaps. A fizzy drink might calm you, if you will, please, Claire. I must to class with these two chaps. Megan raised an eyebrow at being called a chap, but she knew Mr. Appleblossom often overlooked minor details in his quest for perfect rhymes, and like most students, she was okay with it. Of course, Siggy, Miss Morning said. Interesting choice of spells, Megan. What did you use? Oh, it wasn't me, Megan said. It was Cole's quick thinking. Cole's face turned red. Fire ants, he said. It'll wear off in 15 minutes or so. I doubt they'll try that again, Megan said. Miss Morning nodded, but her face was troubled. I'm glad it wasn't a permanent spell, or we might be in more from than we wish for. She led the necessaries toward the mansion's kitchen, while Mr. Appleblossom, Cole, and Megan headed for the tubes to the theater. Sixteen. A Mostly Normal Day. 
On rare occasions, Alex was late for class, and this was one of those times. While Cole set fire ants upon ruffians, Alex scrubbed his face and tried to rum comb through his tangled wet hair, but gave up as Clive chided him from the living area of his room. Late, Clive said every 30 seconds. Stuff it, I know. Alex shoved his books and notebook into his backpack and searched frantically for his component vest. He was presenting a new spell today in Actor's Studio, so he needed it. Late. Seriously, Clive, he said through clenched teeth. I am aware of that. Clive tilted his head. What rhymes with apple blossom, he asked. Not much, but I know what would be worse. Alex ignored him. Orange blossom, Clive said. He chuckled to himself. Orange blossom, get it? Nothing rhymes with orange, so it would be... Clive glanced at the clock in the corner of a screen. Late, he said again. Alex found his component vest and slipped it on. He grabbed his backpack and stepped into the tube. Bye, he said sarcastically. Don't die, Clive said. He'd been saying that since the day of the battle with Quill, and since that it worked, Clive said it daily. Alex didn't mind. He knew that deep down Clive was rather fond of him, and while normally quite annoying, the blackboard generally did whatever he could for the boy. A moment later, Alex stepped into the tube from the theater, where Mr. Appleblossom was already addressing the class. Alex slid into his seat next to Megan. Shush, she said. I didn't say anything, Alex said, but Megan glared at him. He sighed and set a backpack on the floor in front of him, pulling out his notebook and pencil as quietly as he could. Mr. Appleblossom, blind to Alex's lateness, waxed on. In times like these, I do despair this place. Kerfuffles and commotion follow me. But one must hurly-burly through the race, for flipper, flap, and ruck should never be. Alex blinked. He raised an eyebrow at Megan, but dared not to speak. She scribbled in his notebook. There was a skirmish on the lawn this morning. She turned her attention back to the instructor. Alex's eyes widened. He scribbled back. Who's flipper, flap, and ruck He poked the corner of her notebook into Megan's leg to get her attention. Megan let out a frustrated breath and read the note. Shh, she said, and pushed it away again. Alex, who hadn't said a word, wrote, I am not making any noise, so stop shushing me. He poked it into her leg again. Megan ignored him. Alex gave up and listened as Mr. Appleblossom talked about their next production. And then everyone dies, the end. Another Appleblossom original. A musical comedy this time, basically loosed on The Purge, which sounded kind of weird. Sam, he leaning forward in his seat, was nearly drooling over the lead part already. After the announcement came, spells time, whereon a few students introduced their latest theater spells to Mr. Appleblossom in the class. A few were fairly useless, but Alex and Lonnie tended to offer a decent lot that were sometimes practical for everyday life in theater, and sometimes potentially lethal, should Arta may be forced to fight again. Today, Lonnie's spell was a practical one. She said it was a seek spell, and explained that if an actor missed his cue and was unable to be found, Mr. Appleblossom only needed to touch something that the actor had created and say, seek, silently, and a ball of light would fetch the missing student. When the actor caught the ball of light, it would explode, briefly displaying like a picture, that created element that Mr. Appleblossom had touched. The wayward actor would then be able to decipher who was summoning, and simply follow the direction to where the light came from. To demonstrate, Lonnie picked up one of Mr. Appleblossom's older scripts that he'd lent her. She closed her eyes, imagined the silent verbal component, and a bright ball of light shot out directly from the script to Mr. Appleblossom. It hovered until the instructor reached out for it, and then it exploded, and a lighted picture of the astonishing adventures of breakfast and pear flower appeared in the air and melted away a moment later. Mr. Appleblossom applauded. A silent, lighted spell is all the rage, he cried out, for it can be so dark behind the stage. Lonnie grinned and sat down. Alex's spell was a practical one, too. Not really one of his best, but he thought it would be quite popular in the right niche. 
He called it the prompter. It was a tiny intuitive earpiece that would whisper the words one needed when performing, in case of stage fright or confusion. You only have to rehearse it with place in your ear, and it will memorize the lines you say out loud in the proper order. When you try to repeat the words later during a performance, it recognizes the context. If you get stuck, just touch the earpiece to signal that you need a prompt, and it immediately whispers the next line into your ear. He demonstrated and offered others a try. I've only made one so far. He took a while, but now that I have it figured out, I can make more when I have time. How very interesting, Mr. So, Mr. Appleblossom said, but he looked concerned. As long as all the actors here realize that this is not a substitute, you know, for the old-fashioned way to memorize. The little man tapped his foot threateningly. Of course, sir, Alk said. Actors wouldn't be actors if they had to use it frequently. It's only supposed to be used for the occasional emergency prompt. In fact, he said, brightening up, I think I can alter it so that if too many prompts are needed in a certain period of time, the earpiece shuts down. Mr. Appleblossom smiled. I think that alteration will work well. Congratulations. It's a brilliant spell. After class, the four friends met up and tubed to the dining room. So what happened? Alex asked once they got to a table with their food. A fight? Who was fighting? Megan spoke up. Some wanteds came by pretending to visit, so the drinos let them in. But they were really here to, um, encourage their necessaries to go back to Quill and work. Why'd you say encourage, all weird? Because it was more like force. They were going to shackle them. Alex's face grew troubled. Oh no. Lonnie jumped in. Mr. Appleblossom tried to settle it peacefully, but the wanteds took a swipe at him. So Megan and Cole totally sent them running with fire ant spells, she grinned. That's excellent, Alex said. Nice work, Meg. It wasn't me, she said modestly. It was Cole. Sam, he'd rolled his eyes and muttered, he's lucky he didn't miss and hit Mr. A. Megan went on as if she hadn't heard it, Sam, he'd. The wanteds were really furious. Mr. Appleblossom told us that he thinks we'll see more fights. She sighed and tossed what was left of her roll back onto her plate. I thought this was all over. I don't want to do this war thing anymore. Alex bit his lip. He didn't want to tell her that Mr. Today had said about the probability of that. He knew Megan was still struggling to make sense of her family situation, and she didn't need more stuff to worry about. His thoughts turned back to his meeting with Mr. Today, and he wondered who Mr. Today would choose to be the future leader. He looked as if he might need help sooner than anyone expected. Seventeen. Born to spy. Okay, Mr. Broody Pants, spill it, Lonnie said to Alex as the four of them sat in the booth in the lounge one afternoon. Seeing who sometimes joined them for afternoon snacks was nowhere to be found. Sam eat smirked. Megan, swirling a mug of hot chocolate, tilted her head, puzzled. Spill what? Alex looked crossly at her. You always think you know things. Lonnie grinned. Aha, she said. I do know things. I'd make a great spy. So what's going on with you? She slid toward him. Tell us. Yeah, Megan said. I've been meaning to ask. What have you been talking with Mr. Today about? Is that what's up? Nothing's up, Alex said. Stop bucking me. Sam Heed, watching all of this, crossed his arms over his chest and settled back into his seat as the girl stared Alex down. Alex flashed Sam Heed a helpless look, but Sam Heed just shrugged. You're on your own. Alex leaned back and let his hand flop against the booth cushion. Fine, he said with a sigh. Mr. Today wants to take a holiday and he needs somebody to... I don't know, sort of help Miss Morning to run the place, I guess. Ooh, a holiday, Megan said dreamily. Nobody ever does that. Where is there to go? I thought holidays were only in books. Lana's lips parted in surprise. So he wants you, she said softly. Well, he mentioned something like that, but I said no thanks. Alex turned to Megan. He wants to go back to the island where he grew up. Sam, he narrowed his eyes. 
He wasn't born here. I guess not, Alex said. He didn't know how much Mr. Today wanted him to say, so he remained vague. Why did you say no? Lonnie's eyes blazed. Alex looked at her surprise. Because I'd be a terrible leader. What? Megan exclaimed. No, you wouldn't. Don't be so thick. She sat back on her seat. Besides, this place practically rides itself by now, doesn't it? And it's just for a holiday. What's that, a few weeks maybe? Alex scowled at the table and said nothing. Lonnie stared at Alex. Megan looked at Sam Heed and then back at Alex. Oh, so not a few weeks, Lonnie said. Longer then? Sam Heed leaned forward, elbows on the table. All right, Stowe, what's this really about? Alex, feeling a headache coming on, pressed his fingers to his temples. For some stupid reason, Mr. Diddy thought I would make a good future leader. A permanent one after he, you know, gets too old. Like in ten years. So he wanted to start training me, a bit at a time now, so I can help Miss Morning while he's on his little holiday. And then slowly take over some other things, because Miss Morning doesn't want the job permanently. But I said no, because I'd stink at it. So that's it. Okay? Can we drop it? Sam Mead stared, mouth open. Lonnie sat quiet, the corners of her lips twitching downward. Eyes trained to a nebulous spot across the room. Megan grinned, patting Alex's arm. That is quite hilarious, she said. Good one, Al. Everyone was awkwardly silent. Megan's smile slowly disappeared. She looked from face to face. Not a joke? she asked. Alex shook his head slightly. Lonnie nudged Sam Heed, indicating she wanted out of the booth. I have to go, she said, her voice wavering. When Sam Heed saw the look on her face, he scrambled to his feet so she could slide out. She shoved past him and ran through the tubes, leaving the others staring, speechless. Alex just sat there. Did I miss something? What just happened? he asked. Is she sick? Megan shrugged, mystified. Sam Heed still standing, looked at Alex and finally shrugged. I guess I'll go see if she's okay then, he said. He turned, strode quickly to the tubes, and disappeared.